Who knows what this book is? Anybody recognize this book? If you are, I see the people who are about my age nodding their heads. Yes. This, this is the book that made Biff Tannen an incredibly wealthy jerk. Now, he was always a jerk. This book just made him a wealthy jerk. Because in Back to the Future Part 2, old Biff Tannen got his hands on a copy of Gray's Sports Almanac, a book that contained all of the results of sporting events from what was in the past, 1950 through 2000, and Biff stole the DeLorean and took a copy of that book back into the 1950s and gave a copy of that book to young Biff and told him to gamble on the results. Just bet on the winners and you will never lose, is what old Biff said to young Biff. When the scene changed back to 1985, Biff Tannen was one of the wealthiest men in the world because he'd been betting for decades uh, on games he already knew the outcome of. It, they were sh it was a sure thing. Have you ever imagined or daydreamed about what if you knew a sure thing? Have you ever thought about what if I had known Amazon was a sure thing? What if I had bought a hundred or so shares of Amazon when it went public, when I was in college at 18 bucks a share? If I had only known it was a sure thing, what would I have done? Well, for every thousand dollars you would have invested into Amazon at its opening, every thousand bucks would be worth over a million today. But you didn't know it was a sure thing. Well, today, Paul wants to tell us about something that's a sure thing. Hasn't happened yet. It really is kind of hard to, it's almost hard to believe. In fact, if the Bible didn't tell us what Paul is going to tell us today, I don't think any of us would, would believe it or expect it. But today, Paul is going to tell us something. I've been telling you to make sense of what Paul's been telling us. I've been telling you for a while now, but today, Paul's going to come right out and say it. One day, God is going to save Israel as a whole in mass, as a nation. And that's sort of the climax of this section of the book of Romans we've been going through for a couple of months now. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are the fourth major section of the, the body of the book of Romans. And they revolve around this question, what about Israel? Here's why that was a question of importance in Paul's day. Paul, himself a Jewish man, Paul knew that God had promised to save Israel. Over the last couple of months, I've shown you... Um, uh, some scriptures where God promises to save Israel. That's 
It's a clear promise in the Old Testament. Then Jesus comes. The Son of God through whom God offers to save people. The only way God offers to save people. And Israel rejects Jesus. And so by Paul's day, as Paul sits down to write the book of Romans, here's the question in people's minds. God promised to save Israel, but Israel's not being saved. In fact, by and large, the overwhelming majority of Israeli-descended people have rejected Jesus. They're not what we call saved, redeemed, justified. Paul and his fellow early Christians look around at the demographic makeup of the fledgling church. It's overwhelmingly Gentile. So people start to ask this question, what's God going to do with Israel? Well, today Paul's going to tell us. He's going to tell us God is going to save Israel. It's a sure thing. You can bet on it, Biff, and you will never lose. So let's read um, Romans 11, verses 23 through 27. We'll see how Paul gets this point across today. And then we'll talk a little bit about why, that's in, why it's an important thing for you and I to understand. Romans chapter 11, uh, verses 23, uh, should be through 27. Through 27, uh, we're going to do 28 and 29 next week. So Romans 11, 23 through 27. Speaking of Israel, Paul says, and they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. For if you, Gentiles, were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, and you were grafted in contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the Jews, who are the natural branches, branches be grafted into their own olive tree for I do not want you brethren to be uninformed or ignorant of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial heart partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so all Israel will be saved just as it is written the deliverer will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Now we start this sermon in kind of a funny place. This may not be, have been the best place to cut between last week's sermon and this week's sermon. Because where we start in verses 23 and 24, Paul is... Paul's still dealing with an illustration that we went through most of it last week about an olive tree. And so I'm, I cut off the end of that illustration and saved it for this week. So to make sense of the first couple verses, I feel like I've got to give you a, a little bit of a review of what we studied last week, or in case you weren't here to get you caught up quickly. Paul last week decided to, and I'll use this as our olive tree here this week, Paul decided to compare salvation by faith, justification by faith, to an olive tree. Salvation, people going to heaven after they die, people being accepted by God, 
has always been by faith. Always. Now the content of saving faith has changed over the millennia. When God called out to Abram, Abram didn't know who God was. Genesis 12, he just shows up to this Iraqi feller. Say, if you follow me, leave home. Follow me to a place I'll show you. I'll give you these promises. And we read in the book of Genesis, Abraham believed God, and that was reckoned to Abraham as if it were righteous righteousness. Abraham was saved by faith. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 4. Salvation has always been by faith alone. Now, Abraham didn't believe that Jesus of Nazareth died on a cross for his sins. He had no idea. Later, um, Abraham's descendants, Israel under the law, they were saved by faith alone. What they had to believe, the content of their faith, was something like this. God allows a substitute to die in my place. And so they would take various sacrifices to the tabernacle, then to the temple. They would confess their sins on the head of that animal. They would sacrifice that animal. And they believed, God will justify me by allowing a substitute to die in my place. It was their faith that saved them. They demonstrated their faith by performing the sacrifices. And all of that stuff pointed to Jesus Christ. By Paul's day and by our day, we are responsible to believe in the once for all sacrifice. That Jesus died on that cross in my place, in your place, under the punishment your sins deserve. And now there's salvation in no one else. Now, that's the only way anybody's sin was ever actually dealt with. Because that's where God poured out his wrath for the sin of, of mankind. But I don't believe people were responsible to believe in the sacrifice of Jesus until Jesus. Now, Paul equates that all of salvation history, everyone who is justified by faith, he compares it to an olive tree. So being hooked in to this plant that was planted in Abraham and grew through Israel, that's being redeemed, being saved. And for eons, for millennia, almost everyone who was saved was a Jewish person because that's who God had revealed himself to, was Israel, was an Israelite person. It's not that there was ever a time where every Israelite was saved. That's not true. There was always, there were always unbelievers in Israel. So, that's salvation by faith. When Jesus came, though, Israel rejected her king, rejected Jesus. And Paul said it was like those branches that were Israelite were broken off. They weren't connected by faith, by, by the requisite faith for salvation. And then God turned, took his sights away from predominantly Israel and he began saving, rescuing Gentiles through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's us. There were these wild plants, Germanic tribes, 
that were pagan, um, polytheistic, and God grafted a German branch into this tree and it grew, it's been growing, and, and some of us, some of you, are like fruit from that branch. There's a, there's a Chinese branch, there's, uh, there's an Arabic branch, there's every tribe and tongue and nation on earth grafted in to justification by faith. That's last week's sermon. It's like the tree has very Hebrew roots, but we get grafted in. And Paul told us that last week because he didn't want us to boast over the broken off Jewish branches. He's going to tell us more about that today. That's last week's sermon. Today, Paul picks up. He wasn't quite done with the olive tree uh, illustration. And so where he picks up today, Paul tells us Israel is going to be regrafted in to that tree. How? By faith in Jesus Christ. That's the only way anyone gets into this tree. So Paul says, and even they, even Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. And Paul says this, if you Gentiles, if you were cut off from those wild pasture olive trees, if you were cut off from that and grafted in, surely you know that, that God could take a Jewish person and graft their family back into what is really their tree. That's, that's going to happen by faith. Um, it won't happen in mass yet, but it happens all the time. We watched uh, a couple of weeks ago a video of a gentleman from the, from, uh, the Shalom Project, one of those videos. Um, I found Shalom. He was a Jewish man, read the New Testament, and realized Jesus Christ is the Jewish Messiah. Grafted in. His branch is going to keep growing. Now, Paul is ready to tell us about the major event when Israel will be grafted in in mass. But before he does, I'm going to call time out and take us on a bit of a rabbit trail here. Because Paul starts verse 25 by saying this, For I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brethren, or brothers and sisters, fellow Christians. And there's something I feel like I, I need to stop and explain about this word right here, mystery. Um, when Paul uses the word mystery, and Paul is overwhelmingly the one in the New Testament who uses this word. Jesus did too, use it the same way. But Paul uses it more than anyone else. When Paul talks about a mystery, he doesn't use that word the way you or I use this word. Um, when Paul talked about a mystery, he wasn't talking about leaving clues that you and I have to put together to find some secret information. Uh, Paul doesn't want us, the Bible doesn't want us, God doesn't want us as Christians to feel like we are the religious Columbo. You remember Columbo? Or we're not spiritual CSI. 
That's not what Paul is, is talking about. He doesn't want us to look at the stars and current events and some passages in the scripture and put clues together and find some secret information that not everyone has. That's not particularly even Christian. It's not a good thing to do. For Paul, a mystery is something that people used to not know, but he's about to tell us. For Paul, a mystery was something that if we would go back into the Old Testament and live during the Old Testament era, we wouldn't be able to reasonably predict. I'll get to the the mystery in a second, but a mystery for us then, biblically speaking, is something that's no longer a mystery by our understanding of that word. It's not mysterious anymore. We are told it used to be a mystery. Now we know it. There's a couple of reasons why I want to make a big deal out of this. First, there are many, what I'm going to call mystery religions that are still alive and well in the world and in America today. They won't call themselves that. The mystery religions are like ancient polytheistic cults. But lots of world religions still operate like a mystery religion. It works like this. We've got this secret information. And if you want to get it, you've got to get inside, right? Like we don't put all of the information on the website. It's not public. In fact, Even the first, when you first start coming to our church, to our temple, to our whatever it is, we can't even tell you all the information then. You have to be initiated. You have to be a couple of steps up the ladder and you get this group of secrets. And you keep going and you might get some more secrets. Or instead of a ladder, it might be a rabbit hole. You have to be a little further down. Christianity doesn't have anything like that. We put our information on our website. We're open with our beliefs. And it's not that we can't continue to learn because that's what we're doing right now, I hope anyway. I learn a lot every week. But there's no initiation. The people who've been coming to this church since this building was built, literally, they get the information at the same time as someone who just walks in off the street or would call me on the phone. All religions don't work like that. Scientology doesn't work like that. You got to be down the rabbit hole a ways. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they used to be called the Mormons, but I don't think they want to be called the Mormons anymore. Um, They don't work like that. You got to be there a while. You got to be initiated. I would add the Masons, even though it's not necessarily a religion, but there's certainly a mystery organization. You got to come and be there a while before you start getting the secrets. So that's one reason. I want to warn you away, young people, when you leave home, I want to warn you away from anything like that. If they won't tell you all the beliefs right away, stay away. But the other reason I want to point this out is there's, it's, this is really popular right now and it probably always has been, but there's what I'm going to call a kind of pseudo-Christian search or secret information. It's sort of Christian. It sounds Christian. It's not really Christian. 
that is sort of mystery searching. Like if you go to the grocery store, you go to a supermarket where they have magazine racks, and every so often the, the, the front, the cover of the magazine will say something about Bible prophecies revealed. You seen those? I've never read any of them, and I'll tell you, it's garbage. Okay, just general rule, bunk. Stay away. Okay, there's this, there's this, this hunger for information we're actually not told, and then there's this idea that, and people will do this, there's a million YouTube videos where some guy will tell you, you can take today's date, and you can take the, the letters in some politician's name, and you can put those numbers together, and you divide by the circumference of the tabernacle, and you do something else, and it's, an answer spits out, and that tells you Obama's the Antichrist. Now we know. Right? Or Trump is. Or whatever. But wait 10 years, it'll be someone else. Okay? Do you know when Jesus was talking about future events, do you know what his number one piece of advice for us was? Do not be deceived. Do not be misled. Christianity is not supposed to work like that. The mysteries in the scriptures, we are told. Are we told everything we would like to know? No, but the stuff we're not told we're not told. We live by faith after that. We don't try to look at the current events or the stages of the moon or anything else and try to slam that into some scriptures to get secret information we're not told. Okay, end of rant. But I just want to throw that out there. Stay away from that stuff. It's not good for you. So what is this mystery that Paul reveals? Paul says... I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. See, I want you to know. Here's the mystery. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That's the mystery. It's not a secret anymore. We know. In the Old Testament, this was a mystery. No one in the Old Testament could have looked forward and predicted a time was coming when most of the people connected to God by faith would be non-Israelite people. That was a mystery. But it's not a mystery now. We know. And look what Paul says about this mystery that he has revealed. He said that hardening of Israel is partial and it's temporary. Here's what Paul, one of the Romans to know, reading this letter, here's what Paul wants you to know. All these broken off Jewish branches or Israelite branches, God has hardened the collective heart of the nation of Israel so that it will not turn to Christ in mass. Can individual Israelites believe? Absolutely. But God is making sure that does not happen yet. But it's partial because some people on this tree do have Israeli roots. There's always a believing remnant. And it's temporary. It's only that hardening is only going to last as long as until 
the full number of the Gentiles has come in. Or Jesus said, until the times of the Gentiles are complete. Here's what Paul wants us to know. Israel, unbelieving Israel, they're not saved, they're not redeemed, and God is keeping national Israel from accepting Christ for a limited time only. And Paul's going to give us a glimpse of what's going to be going on when Israel does accept Christ. Why, did, why does God do that? It sounds really mean. Paul told us last week. Because that's when he's, he's turning his attention to save bucketfuls of us, us filthy Gentiles. And a time is coming when God says, all right, the full number of Gentiles have come in. The harvest is complete. All the Gentiles I want to save are in the bin. And then he's going to go back and regraft in Israel into the tree of faith when they accept Christ as Savior. Now, why does Paul want us to know that? The answer to that question is on the screen. Do you see it? Why does Paul want us to know that Israel has been hardened partially and temporarily so that you, that's us, so that we are not conceited? Paul says, Gentile church, don't look around at those silly Jews who don't believe this was a bigger deal in Paul's day than it is in our day. Don't look around at those silly Jews and, and think, man, what a bunch of idiots. How can they not see Jesus? Paul said, you want to know why? Because God has hardened his, the hearts of his own people so he can save you. And you are only saved because God unsoftened your heart and rescued you from your own sin, someday he's going to do the same thing to them. God didn't save you because there's something special necessarily about you. God still loves his people, Israel, still has a plan for his people, Israel. Paul says, I want you to know that so that you, if anything, you should feel bad. But Israel exists under a, a nationally hard heart. Don't consider yourself as higher or more than an Israelite who rejects Jesus. God still has a place for them and a plan for them. God had a place for us and a plan for us. And we only are in that tree because of what Jesus did, nothing from what we did. And now finally... Paul's ready to tell us that God's going to save Israel. He comes right out and says it. And so, or that is how, all Israel will be saved. There's only one way anyone will be saved. By faith in Jesus Christ. So they have to believe. Paul already told us, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's God's power for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Jews have to believe in Jesus. It's the only way they're going to be saved. Paul says that's going to happen. Well, what's going to be going on? How's it going to, how's it going to look when that happens? Paul says he's quoting from the book of Isaiah right now, 700 and some years before Christ, 700 and some years before Paul. Paul says, the deliverer, who's that? That's Jesus. 
The deliverer will come out of Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. That's Israel. And this is my covenant with them, Israel, when I take away their sins. Whose sins? Israel's. Paul says, here's how all Israel is going to be saved. And I want to tell you, when Paul says Israel, do you know who he means? Israel. I make a big deal of that because there's a lot of well-meaning, Bible-believing, saved Christians who think half the time when Paul says Israel, he doesn't really mean Israel, he means the church. The problem, the first problem with that is when Paul wrote this letter to a bunch of Gentiles and he said Israel, they would have never thought he's meaning anything besides Israel, because Israel is Israel. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. In verse 25, the people who were hardened is national Israel. In verse 26, the people who are saved is national Israel. And here's how it's going to happen. This prediction that Paul quotes from the book of Isaiah, everyone thought would happen when Messiah showed up. But Jesus showed up. Did Jesus remove ungodliness from Israel? Did he take away the sins of national Israel the first time he came? No. You know why? Because they rejected him. Didn't believe in him. So you know what Paul says right here? We're still waiting on this. Paul says it's going to happen. All Israel will be saved. What's the only way anyone ever gets saved from the cross until Jesus comes again? What's the only way anybody's ever going to be saved? By believing in Jesus. Paul says the deliverer is going to come again. And for you and I, that means it's homecoming week. Right? We get to go home. It's the stadium event. We share in his glory and worship him forever and ever. But for Israel, they will finally get it. Oh, Jesus is the deliverer. Jesus is the Messiah. And when they believe, Jesus is going to remove ungodliness from Jacob, from Israel. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. You know how many covenants, written, expressed covenants in the, old, in, in the Bible that, that God has with us, Gentiles, the church? You know how many? None. Zero. All of God's covenants are with Israel. God's covenants are with Israel. He's talking about the new covenant right here that was established in the blood of Jesus Christ. We get to be grafted in we get to enjoy the benefits of the covenant. But God promised to save Israel from Israel's sins. And he's going to. He's going to come back, remove ungodliness from Jacob, and take away their sins. Now He does that for us too. Praise God. Now, Why do we need to know all that? Why is it important that we know that God's going to save Israel? In some ways, I'm not sure it is. 
Don't stone me, because we've spent like two months talking about it, so I must think it's somewhat important. This section we've been in, chapters 9, 10, and 11, what about Israel? It's really not about Israel. It's about the faithfulness of God. Can we believe God's promises? Paul knows. If, if the people in the fledgling church read God promised to save Israel, and then they know God's really not going to save Israel, or they think God's really not going to save Israel, then how do we know God will believe the promises he promised us? Because God did promise us stuff. He may not have any written covenants with us, but he promised us plenty of things. And if God would ever not keep even one of his promises, how do we know which ones he's going to keep? If God would say to Israel, I know I promised to save you guys from your sin, national Israel, but really I'm going to change my mind and do that for somebody else, and I'm going to not do it with you. How do we know he won't do that with us? We have to understand. We have to believe that when we're talking about God, we are talking about a sure thing. We have to believe you can bet on this stuff, Biff, and you will never lose. So Paul takes a time out in the flow of the book of Romans. He tells us how people are, why we need to get saved, how to get saved, the hope we have because we are saved. Then he takes three chapters to explain, hey, even the promise, even the promises that you don't see how God is possibly keeping, I want you to know he's keeping them. So that you can know the promises of God are a sure thing. So that we can know. I, I just went and pulled some promises out of just one chapter of the book of Romans to remind you of some of the promises. But you have to believe these are a sure thing. Romans chapter 8 starts this way. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When is there no condemnation? Right now, already. Verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. That is a promise that when God condemned Jesus on the cross, he was condemning your sin. So that now there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Later in the chapter, we get this promise. We are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs co-heirs with Jesus Christ. He's going to keep that promise. Verse 18 of that chapter, Paul said, the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. Do you believe that promise? Verse 28, we know all of this bad stuff down here somehow is working together for the good of those who love God. Verse 37, in all these things, and that these things are things like death and hunger, malnutrition, war. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And the end of the chapter, we get this promise. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that promise says? God loves you if you believe in Jesus Christ. No matter what else happens, God loves you. You want to know why Paul took us through a really difficult to understand three chapters, 9, 10, and 11? You know why? Because Paul knows we're going to have a hard time believing that. And if we don't believe God will keep his promise to Israel, maybe you won't believe that God loves you, that you have no condemnation from God, that all this stuff is working together for your good if you love God through Christ Jesus, that, there, that the, the sufferings of this world aren't able, shouldn't even be compared to the glory that's waiting, all that awesome stuff. Paul wants you to actually believe this stuff. So he said, I'm going to take the one promise that I, I hear people are maybe starting to think that God isn't keeping and show you how God is keeping them. He wanted you to believe that one so you can believe this one. So we'll leave this right here, folks. God's going to save Israel. He's going to keep even his difficult promises. And I want you to believe that so you can believe this. God loves you. Even though you're a wreck. Even though your life is a mess. Even though your harvest hasn't been what you've wanted it to be. Even though you're hurting, even though you're lonely. God loves you. And you know how I know? Because God promised and God always, always, always keeps his promises. Pray with me and we'll finish. Father God, uh, I thank you for your word, even the hard parts. Thank you for um, expressing to us over the last few months, and we will finish up next week, about you keeping your promise to your people, Israel. Uh, but God, I, I hope that that's not just um, information that we learn, but it helps to build our faith that you can keep your promises even even when our world is falling apart, even when our health takes a nosedive, even when things are scary, even when things are painful. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for leading Paul to give us three chapters to help us understand how we can believe in your promises even when we can't understand how you are keeping them. We love you, Lord. Thank you for promising us eternal life through faith in Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Stand and finish with us.